Dear sisters and brothers in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Well, again, it's good to be back with you this morning. And uh, uh, we, we need a little bit of a history lesson for us to, I think, get a better grasp of this uh, gospel reading. You need to know a little bit about money in the first century. Um, first of all, no one had checking accounts. There wasn't such a thing. There were banks, uh, but uh, you weren't supposed to charge interest. I've tried to raise that with my banker, and so far it hasn't worked very well. Uh, but if you, if you charged interest, it was a sign that you didn't trust God, that you weren't being faithful. But they had banks back then. But there were no checking accounts. There were uh, no one in one sense was keeping your 401k, right? So money in a real sense was normally possessions. Livestock was the principal one. Sheep, goats, camels, horses, cattle, all of those were quite literally money in the bank. And the more that you had of them, the more you were worth. Also, it was almost, it was about as rare as all get out for, for you to actually have silver coins or gold coins. Uh, because all kinds of reasons. One, they're easy to steal. And if you don't have a safe to put them in or a bank to put them in, it gets pretty tough to keep track of them. So, in one sense, salt was money. Roman soldiers got paid with a bag of salt every month. That's where the word salary comes from. So possessions were the primary source of wealth, and income. And so, again, just as a little side, when you see people sharing some of that, when people come to, to eat, they are carving out some of their wealth as they take an animal and prepare it for food. So we're in a part of Luke where Jesus now has become incredibly popular. The, the 12th chapter starts with an announcement that there are now thousands of people following Jesus. As he's moving around the Sea of Galilee, every time he sets up shop for the afternoon and begins to preach or teach, here is this throng. It's a large group. And just like our children's sermon, there can reach that point where it can get out of control. And so the, they translate it very nicely but actually this person's yelling at Jesus. It's like watching a presidential press conference get out of control. People are starting to shout things at him and that's what's happening here. Tell my, tell my brother to give part of the inheritance to me. Clearly he's the younger brother, mom and dad have already died. The older brother has received the inheritance and the younger brother wants something. And Jesus is like, that's not what I'm here for. But being a good rabbi, he doesn't pass up the opportunity to have a sermon on what it means to have the sin of greed. Now, I've been a pastor for 41 years. You've heard me say that. The sin of greed is one that when it takes hold of a person's life, to me as I've worked with them or I've been around them or when I've had it in my own life, it's like the black hole, that, that spatial event where the gravity is so great that even light itself is sucked in. 
And when it takes hold of a person, it becomes this all-encompassing that nothing else matters but in wanting to fulfill that whole with something. And I've seen all kinds of greed bust out in people's lives, and when I've seen it in mine, it's almost never money, but sometimes it is money. But regularly, it's just like in this text, it's possessions. I need more of this. And I'm quite willing to do anything and everything to get more of it. And somehow, if I can just get enough that, well, then, as it says in the parable, then I can put my feet up and I can relax and go, oh, everything is wonderful. Everything is great. But then being told, well, tonight is the night that you're going to die, and all the things that you've gathered in are now going to belong to someone else. Greed, when it takes hold, is just utterly painful. It's just, it devours people, and sometimes families. I've seen people burn their families on the sin of greed that what they're needing and wanting is so all-encompassing that they're willing to sacrifice everything else in their life to acquire more of it. So how do we understand wealth? Let's just talk about money for a little bit. This is not a stewardship sermon, by the way. But we, we live in a land that is so rich monetarily, it is unbelievable. Even our poor people are wealthy by many, much of the world's standards. Part of the gift of traveling and working with people in other cultures and other places in the world is that you find out how fabulously wealthy we are in this country. You've heard me talk about being a teacher at the seminary in Magunga in Cameroon, and I've had plenty of opportunity 10 times to visit that country and work with them. So I now have actually deep friends that I've gotten to know, people that I, that I admire and love, and I, I like to listen to them preach as they proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. But on one particular trip, I had been having problems with my feet, and I knew that I would be standing on them a lot during this particular trip. And so I had been very intentional about looking for shoes that would be comfortable, that would travel well, that would look good, but would be very comfortable. And I finally found a pair, and they were expensive. And I was happy to spend the money on it. But then as a part of that trip, I'm in a room with these pastors that I now know very well, and we're talking about what we get paid. And they're talking about what they get paid for their work as pastors in the church. And some of them have very large congregations, and they've been about the work of being a pastor for an extended time period. And as they finally reveal what they get paid, I'm pretty good at math and I realize that the salaries of all of the men that are in that room don't add up to what I paid for the shoes. That I, my wealth is so out, of, so out of sync with what they get paid. It was astonishing. And truthfully, I didn't know what to do about that. And I did thoroughly examine myself. Am I greedy? Am I? What do I do with all this? And it truthfully is a struggle for me 
I've had some help along the way on what does it mean to have wealth and how do we use it? What's the purpose of it? And I think that somehow is a better question. What do we do with our money? What do we do with our possessions? Are they there like the man in the, in the story, in the parable, so that we can finally find our own salvation, our own well-being, and not understanding that it's given as a gift, but that by the means of possessions and wealth and 401ks and all the things that come with all of that, then I can put my feet up. Then I can relax because I've now earned my salvation. I've met three billionaires in my life. I've had the opportunity to work with all three of them. One's not worth a bag of salt. Would not, I would do everything I can to avoid spending another minute with them just as obnoxious as any person I've ever met. One, the, the jury's still out. But the third one is now dead, so I can, I can tell this story about him and his wife. And it truthfully was a gift to me as I began to work with them and as I got to know them and as I became their friend. I never became their pastor. I met him at an airport to pick him up to go pheasant hunting. He had flown in on the family jet. He had gotten off holding a shotgun that was about half of my year's salary. But all he talked about as he handed out this case of shells was that he had bought his shotgun shells for $2.95 a box at Gibson's when they were on sale. And I remember thinking, did you grow up in South Dakota? Yeah. Because all you're talking about as you get off your personal jet with a shotgun that's, well, more than I would spend, is how much money you saved on shotgun shells. Wow. So as I got to know him, I found out, in fact, that he was a billionaire several times over. But he and his wife had lived and worked in Minnesota and in South Dakota. They'd had a very successful real estate business. And they had taken some of that money and they intentionally began to open businesses in small towns in rural South Dakota and in rural Minnesota. And then at a certain point in their time, they had thought about it and they'd prayed about it and they actually had talked to their pastor about this. But they had had a dream as they had lived in Minneapolis that they wanted to restore the riverfront. And so they made a decision pretty late in life, what I would consider late in life, to swing for the fences. And they sold all their businesses, mostly to the employees. They sold their real estate business and they mortgaged their house and then took out a second one. And with all that capital, they went and bought every warehouse and mill that they could find on the riverfront. And their friends thought they had lost their mind literally had lost their mind, that they had gone insane. Why would you do this? When I started seminary in 1977, the one thing we knew for sure, and it was the truth, is that you did not go down to the riverfront after dark. Because if you did, you would get mugged and more than likely be murdered. It was as violent and out of control place as any part of the Twin Cities. And that's what they bought. That's what they bought. 
So their entire wealth, all, everything they owned, had been put into this dream. And as we headed out onto internship in August of 1979, the very first restaurant opened in a warehouse. And there were six uniformed Minneapolis policemen on duty, not off duty. And they directed traffic. You got escorted from the parking lot into the restaurant. There were armed policemen in the restaurant because it was that precarious. And when you were done eating, you were escorted out and directed out of the area. And when we came back a year later, that warehouse was filled with people. And we had our re-entrance meal in that. And if you go to the riverfront today, there are thousands of people living down there. Restaurants and shops galore. The river itself has been transformed. Their dream came to fruition. The reason that they were willing to do that as they sat and talked with their pastor is they know who held their life. They were willing to risk everything because they weren't really risking anything. They knew who they belonged to. They knew who held their life. They knew that in Jesus Christ that their sins had been forgiven. Life had been given for a new day and a new chance and a new opportunity. For me, it was, a, it was just a gift to know the both of them to see how wealth could be used to make people's lives better, to restore the earth. When we get that right, I think we get everything right. They knew who they belonged to and who had claimed them and named them. And that is true for all of you. Every one of you in your baptism got whispered in your ear, you are mine. I'll never let you go. He'll never let you go. So, greed can have its way with us. That is true. We can get caught up in the speed of life and think we need to earn our salvation. And it is a black hole. Or in fact, we can rest comfortably in Jesus Christ. So, this week, a gift to all of you. You are Jesus. You do belong to him. 